Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Autoimmune Encephalitis and Rare Neuroimmune Disorders. My name is Chrissy Dilger, and I will be moderating this podcast. The TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael Bradshaw and Dr. Tracy Cho. Dr. Michael Bradshaw graduated from Mayo Clinic School of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota, and went on to complete his neurology residency at Vanderbilt University. He completed additional training in multiple sclerosis and autoimmune neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. His practice and research focus on multiple sclerosis, autoimmune neurology, neurorheumatology, neuroinfectious disease, and other rare neurologic diseases. Dr. Bradshaw and Dr. Sarah Qureshi together run the only National Multiple Sclerosis Society Center for Comprehensive Care in Montana. He is an assistant professor of neurology at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science, and he practices at Billings Clinic in Billings, Montana. Dr. Tracy Cho graduated from Yale, Univers or Yale School of Medicine and completed his neurology residency at Massachusetts General Hospital, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He obtained advanced training through a fellowship focused on autoimmune and infectious neurology. He co-directed the MGH Autoimmune and Infectious Neurology Program for several years and recently joined the University of Iowa to be Director of Neuroimmunology and Vice Chair for Education. His practice and research focus on autoimmune neurology, including transverse myelitis, neurological infections, and the overlap of rheumatology and neurology. We want to thank the Autoimmune Encephalitis Alliance for collaborating with us on this podcast. So welcome and thank you both for joining us today. Um, so thank you. Yeah. So um, first off, uh, if we could just get an overview of what exactly autoimmune encephalitis is, uh, Dr. Cho. Sure. So encephalitis is a term that means inflammation of brain tissue, and it's kind of a generic term. The the inflammation can be due to infection or to autoimmune processes. Sometimes the encephalitis just involves one part of the brain. Other times it involves the entire brain. So some of the encephalitis uh, cases are associated with a specific antibody when the, own, the patient's own immune system is basically attacking the brain. And other types of encephalitis might occur in, uh, or be part of a broader disease that's affecting other parts of the body besides just the brain. Within the autoimmune encephalitis uh, category, we often distinguish between encephalitis that is related to just an aberrant immune system uh, response versus those that are triggered by a cancer. The the those triggered by cancer are, are termed paraneoplastic because it's it's related to the neoplasm, which is another word for cancer. 
and again, many of these autoimmune encephalitis uh, types can be uh, further categorized based on what part of the brain is involved, what specific antibody is present, if there is one. Um, in general, encephalitis comes on fairly quickly over days to weeks and occasionally can come on over months. So when a patient presents with symptoms that might be related to encephalitis, such as memory problems or confusion or psychiatric symptoms or seizures, then uh, autoimmune encephalitis is one of the considerations, but we also have to uh, look at whether there might be an infection or an underlying tumor that is triggering the, the process. Okay, great, thanks. That's a, a really good overview. Um, so Dr. Bradshaw, can you uh, tell us what the diagnostic criteria are and if there are any diagnostic tests or biomarkers for this disease? Yeah, so the diagnostic criteria, I think most importantly, like Dr. Cho was outlining, um, are first to determine whether the patient has clinical features that would be consistent with encephalitis or brain inflammation. Um, when faced with a patient that looks like they have encephalitis, there are a number of other things that are non-inflammatory um, in addition to um, uh, the inflammatory causes that Dr. Cho outlined. So things like uh, intoxication or systemic infection that can cause confusion, things that we call encephalopathy, which is a more broad general term. So it's important for clinicians to first distinguish between um, a non-inflammatory encephalopathy and an encephalitis. And that's based on clinical features, what the patients or their family members uh, tell us as we're evaluating the patient. Uh, it's also based on a number of uh, tests, such as neuroimaging, including brain MRI or PET scans sometimes, um, blood tests, and testing the fluid around the brain, which is called the cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF. Uh, so there was a paper uh, in Lancet Neurology in 2016 by Grouse and colleagues, and a number of experts uh, contributed to that um, paper, which tried to shift the emphasis when evaluating a patient with possible encephalitis to a, uh, a more clinically practical approach rather than relying too heavily on these antibody tests, which are, are very important but are not the uh, sole criteria. So we tend to think of, uh, as Dr. Cho outlined, um, the clinical features being a rapidly progressive course. Usually it's over the course of days to weeks, but up to maybe even a few months. Um, with clinical features, as Dr. Cho outlined, confusion, psychiatric disease, seizures, um, abnormal movements, uh, things like that, uh, or depressed mental status, uh, accompanied by uh, certain features such as new focal uh, central nervous system features that we would determine uh, based on examination, uh, on examining the patient, um, also uh, new seizures and uh, inflammation in the fluid around the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid, uh, based on um, lumbar puncture and CSF examination. And MRI of the brain is often used and is also useful for identifying um, patterns of disease and for evaluating for uh, conditions that can mimic an encephalitis, like just an underlying brain tumor can look very similar to encephalitis without the imaging. And, um, and so then we, we use those clinical features to elevate our suspicion and then we try to exclude other, other causes as reasonably as possible. And I think uh, the last thing I guess I would say is that uh, EEG, which is 
electroencephalography is where we put electrical leads onto the scalp and we can monitor the uh, electrical activity of the brain. And that's often used as well to determine if patients are having subclinical seizures, which are seizures that you can't really see when you're just looking at someone. And that's especially important when a, a person is unconscious. I think that summarizes most of those points there. Okay, great, thank you. Um, so the TMA, as you know, we advocate for uh, disorders such as TM, NMO, MOG-AB disease, AFM. So uh, what? how does autoimmune encephalitis potentially overlap with these conditions? And how can someone tell if they have autoimmune encephalitis versus, you know, ADEM, NMO, MOG, et cetera? Dr. Joe? Um, okay, I can uh, take a step first. So, so transverse myelitis can occur in many different diseases, and many of those diseases also affect the brain. And so, uh, just like we use the term encephalitis for brain inflammation, myelitis is kind of a general term for spinal cord inflammation. And when they happen together, we call it encephalomyelitis. And it can go on and on with many more syllables, depending on how many things are involved. But the the uh, the diseases that can cause uh, transverse myelitis and affect the brain include diseases that you've already mentioned, like NMO and MOG. Uh, obviously, the most common one is multiple sclerosis. The pattern of how the patients present in terms of the timing and what features they have often point in a direction of one or the other of these uh, diseases. So most autoimmune encephalitis patients do not have transverse myelitis at the same time as their encephalitis, or it's not a very prominent part of the disease. There are certainly exceptions to that, um, but for the vast majority of patients who have autoimmune encephalitis, Transverse myelitis is not typically a, a major feature of what we typically think of with antibody-mediated or perineoplastic encephalitis. If transverse myelitis is present, it can be due rarely to the same thing that's causing the autoimmune encephalitis, or it could be that the patient, in addition to autoimmune encephalitis, also has another disease, and, and typically the ones that happen together with autoimmune encephalitis are NMO and MOG, um, although other diseases like ADEM or neurosarcoidosis uh, can also be uh, seen with uh, transverse myelitis. So just to clarify some of that terminology, NMO and MOG are often grouped together as diseases that typically affect the optic nerve and the spinal cord predominantly. Um, NMO is a little bit different in that it is due to a specific antibody, and we know the antibody being present is the cause of the symptoms. We know that NMO, because it's due to the immune system tendency to, to make these abnormal antibodies, it can also be present in patients who have other autoimmune diseases. That is to say that, that if a patient has an immune system that has a tendency to make antibodies against its own tissues, they sometimes will generate antibodies that cause different diseases. 
So it's not unusual that patients with NMO also have diseases like lupus or thyroiditis or other non-neurologic diseases that are uh, due to autoimmunity. So in that sense, because autoimmune encephalitis is also an autoimmune disease, there uh, are going to be some patients who just have a tendency to make these antibodies and they happen to have two different diseases because their immune system is a little bit hyperactive. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Michael from there. Yeah, I would add that um, uh, along the lines of what Dr. Cho was saying, um, we see uh, some overlap of autoimmune encephalitis with these, you know, MOG antibody or the aquaporin-4 antibody, which is the diagnostic marker for NMO. And in maybe as many as 3% of cases of autoimmune encephalitis have associated um, MOG or NMO antibodies. That was from one study so far from 2014 uh, found that rate of about 3%. Um, so we do see some overlap there, which can be uh, clinically extremely difficult to identify. Uh, and that's where part of the uh, close neurologic monitoring during the diagnosis and treatment of an autoimmune encephalitis is so important to identify um, patterns of illness that might suggest uh, an additional problem, such as you know, if someone has uh, NMDA receptor encephalitis, the most common cause of autoimmune encephalitis, uh, they may also develop one of these, what we call a presumed demyelinating syndrome or a MOG or aquaporin-4 antibody, and they can develop focal neurologic deficits that evolve in a typical temporal profile that would be consistent with one of these demyelinating conditions. Um, and so neuroimaging, again, uh, is sometimes necessary and um, to identify those as well as the exam and, uh, and ongoing neurologic monitoring. And those patients who have the, this overlap, that perhaps 3%, the number could be more or less depending on further studies that come out, uh, they tend to be less likely to have an underlying malignancy, which like Dr. Cho was talking about, suggests that perhaps that individual just has a greater predisposition to generating autoimmune antibodies. And um, uh, so that rate was about one of 23 patients in that study versus uh, 18 out of 50 for the uh, non-overlap syndrome autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, and in, in that study, at least, most of the patients who had the overlap syndrome had uh, a more protracted uh, recovery and more residual deficits that tended to be mostly related to the the demyelinating or the astrocytopathy of the uh, NMO or MOG rather than the autoimmune encephalitis itself. So, and, and that suggests that they may need further treatment and closer monitoring. Uh, we reported a case of that I, with Dr. Froman and uh, Tanuja Chitness in, in the neurology, neuro, uh, neuroimmunology and neuroinflammation recently that was an interesting uh, exploration of that. And he, he did very well, but it was a challenging case for sure. Okay, thank you both. Those were um, really thorough and, and great answers. Um, so uh, you mentioned some some antibodies. What are the different antibodies associated with autoimmune encephalitis, Dr. Bradshaw? Yeah. So uh, in addition to you know we tend to think of um, NMO and the aquaporin four and MOG antibodies that is technically autoimmune and they can technically cause an encephalitis, but those are generally different conditions. When we when we talk about an autoimmune encephalitis, for the most part, we're referring to um, uh, these, this 
category of encephalitis that's caused by these antibodies or associated with an antibody. And so we broadly divide these antibodies into two groups, those antibodies that target uh, antigens such as proteins, et cetera, that are within the nerve cell itself or uh, anti uh, antibodies that target an antigen on the surface or in the synaptic cleft of the nerves. So that differentiation is one of the fundamental um, first differentiations that we make, and they're associated with slightly different um, clinical course, and we think the underlying pathology is is different between those. Uh, so the the most common cause of autoimmune encephalitis would be NMDA receptor encephalitis, which is a um, a receptor on the in the synapse of a on the cell, on the cell surface. Um, other more common causes of uh, the cell surface and synaptic antibody syndromes include uh, LGI1 encephalitis. This is a uh, protein associated with the voltage-gated potassium channel complex. That's a ion channel that uh, functions in um, nerve signaling. Uh, and then on the on the side of the antibodies that target intracellular antigens, uh, there are conditions that we call, and these are all abbreviations really for their longer words, but uh, things like ANNA1 or PCA1. And these are these different antibodies are all associated with um, different but sometimes overlapping clinical syndromes. And we usually will test for those antibodies um, uh, from the cerebrospinal fluid, although uh, some of them, like NMO uh, antibody, which is the aquaporin-4, are better tested from the serum. Uh, but in general, for testing autoimmune encephalitis, we, we think the higher sensitivity and specificity is uh, when we test it from the cerebrospinal fluid. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so you you already have talked about um, some of the testing methods used to diagnose uh, autoimmune encephalitis, but are there any new promising uh, testing methods that may be developing now or coming out in the future? Uh, for example, some places are using PET scans now. Um, what do you think about that? And is there anything else on the horizon, Dr. Cho? So addressing the question about PET scans specifically, the, the way that scan works is that a uh, molecule is injected into the bloodstream and we use different markers to see where that the, the blood goes that contains that molecule. And the most frequently used uh, molecule for PET scans is a type of sugar. And we basically in the lab, the, the sugar is labeled with uh, a radioactive substance that when you take the scan, it basically shows up and makes that tissue look different on the scan than uh, tissue where that blood flow is not taking the marker. So in general, the it, it shows where there's increased uh, energy utilization and or where there's decreased energy utilization. So in autoimmune encephalitis, sometimes the standard testing like MRI and spinal fluid tests and EEG and antibody testing are all normal, or uh, we don't get a, f a clear answer about whether the patient even has an encephalitis 
versus some other cause of their symptoms. So the PET scan, if it shows an abnormal area of energy utilization, that implies that there's a, an inflammatory process in the brain, and that can be very helpful. There are some specific patterns that can be seen, particularly for NMDA receptor encephalitis, um, where there's a, a change in the, uh, the amount of energy utilization from the front of the brain to the back of the brain, and that can be very helpful, particularly if you don't have the answer from one of your other tests. So the challenge is that the PET is an expensive modality, and it's not available everywhere. And the images that you get are much more subject to interpretation. That is, uh, the abnormality is in the eye of the beholder. So it takes a lot of experience and expertise to, to help interpret those. So I think PET is a very helpful resource, but it has limitations. And it really is a matter of trying to use all of the testing on our disposal together, not any one test apart from detecting the antibody itself is uh, often enough to make these diagnoses. But PET is a newer one that we're using and uh, some of our colleagues that uh, Dr. Bradshaw and I both know at Johns Hopkins have been doing a lot of work in that area. But um, other emerging technologies that I'm hopeful will help us make this diagnosis more speedily and with, with greater precision. Uh, one of those is something called metagenomic sequencing. And this is a method by which uh, we can take a sample, in this case, spinal fluid, and look for any proteins that are there that shouldn't be there. And uh, instead of looking for one specific thing, such as a virus, the, the technology now allows basically to look at every protein in there and sequence it, break it down into its parts to identify where it came from, and then uses uh, a lot of fancy math and computer technology to go through databases and see which of those proteins are typical for humans to have and which ones shouldn't be there. And then um, right now, that technology is mostly being used to identify infections that we don't either have a test for or don't suspect, but it can also be applied to antibodies or other markers of autoimmune encephalitis. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that technology, which will probably become more widely available in the next five to 10 years could help us not only identify things that we might not be looking for, but also to get answers more quickly because the current testing often takes at least a week and patients often need to be treated before those results are back. So those are my two thoughts about the PET scan and the metagenomic sequencing. Um, a lot of that technology has been pioneered by another one of our colleagues, uh, Michael Wilson and others at the University of California, San Francisco. Okay, great, thank you. Um, so I know we've, we've kind of touched on the cause or causes of auto, autoimmune encephalitis, but I was wondering if you just, if you could just explain, uh, you know, anything more detailed that you have to add. And we got the specific question, um, if you think much of 
of it is immune is the immune system's reaction after exposure to a virus. So, Dr. Bradshaw. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it's one that um, uh, many people have been asking for some time: is, is why why do people get this? Um, in many cases, we cannot identify an underlying trigger, um, and so those remain. Uh, it remains to be seen what the underlying trigger in those cases may be, whether there was some um, viral infection or some other environmental exposure or some combination of, like we think with most autoimmune disease, some combination of genetic factors and environmental triggers. Um, hopefully, we will get more information over that in the next in the coming years. Um, the two main causes that we that we do identify would be um, an underlying cancer, as Dr. Cho mentioned before. The, we call that a perineoplastic uh, autoimmune encephalitis. Uh, so sometimes, maybe even over 50% of the time, when someone has an autoimmune encephalitis um, uh, and an underlying cancer, the first thing that happens is the autoimmune encephalitis, and that uh, is the body's way of trying to attack the cancer, but it accidentally, the immune system accidentally recognizes um, the brain or, or certain proteins or elements of the brain as it's trying to uh, clear the cancer, and then that causes the autoimmune encephalitis. So, um, so one of the big things that we always look for when someone has an autoimmune encephalitis syndrome is an underlying uh, malignancy. So, for example, in NMDA receptor encephalitis, the classic association is uh, is an underlying ovarian teratoma, but some other tumors, including uh, tumors in men, have been identified. But about 50% of, of patients with uh, an MDA encephalitis will have an ovarian teratoma. And a teratoma is a tumor type that produces a number of different, um, uh, it produces cells and proteins that look like other tissues in your body. So there can be teeth and hair and neural tissue and muscle tissue and things like that. And uh, if the body, if the immune system starts attacking that, you know, especially with the neural tissue there, it can accidentally recognize parts of the brain and, and attack that as well. Uh, and then the other main identifiable cause, in addition to an underlying cancer, um, and I should add that uh, that some of these autoimmune encephalitis syndromes are more associated with cancers than others. Um, so the specific antibody that someone has often helps us to predict what um, their risk of an underlying cancer is or which kind of cancers we should be looking for. Um, and the other main cause that we see is uh, uh, herpes simplex virus encephalitis, which is actually um, the number one cause of encephalitis worldwide. And that's typically a monophasic uh, illness. This is the virus that causes uh, cold sores on the lips. Uh, it can also reactivate in the brain or perhaps a new infection can go to the brain and cause an encephalitis, which is usually a temporal lobe encephalitis. And like I say, it's usually a monophasic illness um, that requires pretty aggressive treatment. It can be, it has a high fatality rate if it's not treated, but fortunately with uh, modern antiviral agents and supportive care, we are able to get a pretty good survival rate from that. But for a long time, we've seen uh, what looks like a relapse of HSV encephalitis some weeks afterwards in some patients. Um, but when you test their cerebrospinal fluid, they do not actually have a reactivation of the virus. And for a long time, it was suspected that that was some 
autoimmune encephalitis following the viral infection. And it was really in the last couple of years that we've characterized that much further. Um, so we, the current sort of estimate is that probably somewhere in the range of uh, a quarter of patients who develop HSC encephalitis will go on to develop some sort of autoimmune encephalitis afterwards. And they can have antibody markers, such as the NMDA receptor uh, immunoglobulin or the antibody targeting the NMDA receptor, but they often don't fit the typical clinical pattern of a um, a more spontaneous or perineoplastic uh, autoimmune encephalitis, even if they have the same antibody marker. So it's important as we're taking care of people with HSV encephalitis that we follow them closely even after they've completed their treatment and are in, are in that recovery phase. And I generally advocate for uh, close neurologic follow-up in the, you know, within a week or two of discharge and then, you know, uh, every few weeks or so thereafter and, and education for the, uh, the family members and caregivers of the patient about uh, things to watch out for that might suggest a, you know, the development of an autoimmune encephalitis uh, because that's treatable with immunotherapy uh, just like we treat other um, autoimmune encephalitis with immunotherapy. And whether or not other infections such as bacterial infections uh, or other viral infections may be associated with an autoimmune encephalitis uh, I, I don't know that at this point that that's, uh, that pattern has emerged. Uh, it seems that HSV is particularly prone to um, producing um, these autoimmune encephalitis encephalitic syndromes uh, in part because it's so inflammatory and there's the release of uh, neural proteins as the brain is inflamed. All of these proteins are being released and the immune system accidentally recognizes those and then goes on to target them. Uh, later, uh, so we'll see if there's any other associations, but that's the main viral one that we that we know of at this point. Great, thank you. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us what the symptoms of autoimmune encephalitis are, uh, Dr. Cho. Sure. So the the symptoms really vary with the different forms of autoimmune encephalitis. And it really depends on what part of the brain is being targeted most prominently. Some common presentations include new or sudden onset of uh, psychotic symptoms, such as paranoia or hallucinations. And in particular, in someone who's not had any symptoms to suggest a psychiatric illness previously. That is most commonly seen with NMDA receptor encephalitis in particular. And as you can imagine, there are many patients who have a psychiatric illness, and the very first time they develop their symptoms, they're going to be new for that person. So one of the, the things that has happened as we have begun to recognize NMDA receptor encephalitis as a cause of psychosis is that many uh, patients or their families or their psychiatrists have begun to question when someone presents with what they think is uh, something like schizophrenia, whether or not that might actually be due to an autoimmune encephalitis. So as Dr. Bradshaw talked about earlier in terms of the clinical criteria, some important things 
to keep in mind with the psychosis symptoms that can develop is that they usually don't happen in isolation. That is, usually there's more symptoms beyond just psychosis. It also tends to happen rapidly and to progress relatively rapidly. And the other symptoms that, that patients can get include memory problems, general confusion or sleepiness. They can get seizures. They can get changes in their involuntary uh, nervous system that controls their blood pressure and their breathing and their heart rate. And oftentimes it's the other symptoms besides the psychosis that helped determine whether or not we're dealing with an autoimmune encephalitis or a more typical psychiatric illness such as schizophrenia. So the, again, the, some patients don't have any psychosis and they present with just seizures um, and often memory problems because of the part of the brain involved. And so it really varies depending on the, the nature of the autoimmune encephalitis. One other factor that, that helps us determine the likelihood of autoimmune encephalitis is the age of onset where most patients with schizophrenia typically present as teenagers or young adults. Uh, when, when patients present with a new psychosis later in life um, or if it has any unusual features to it, like I mentioned, uh, seizures or uh, other uh, movement uh, symptoms, then we start thinking more about autoimmune encephalitis. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Dr. Bradshaw, can you tell us uh, who can get autoimmune encephalitis? Are kids or adults more likely to be affected, or are there any populations more susceptible to getting this? Yeah, so um, people of all ages have been diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis, uh, including very young. Um, Dalmo has uh, Dr. Dalmau is a is a well-known researcher and neurologist in, uh, involved in autoimmune encephalitis who first described NMDA receptor encephalitis, and he has commented on patients as young as uh, six months old even having uh, NMDA receptor encephalitis. And just a, a couple of weeks ago, we had a patient here who was in his 80s. Uh, he was about 86 who had NMDA receptor encephalitis. So the range is is broad and just about anyone can get it. Um, but um, probably those you know, young adults are in general for some of these more likely to get it. So for example, with NMDA receptor encephalitis, the median age of onset is about 21 years old. Um, but again, the, uh, it can span the age uh, across the, uh, all ages. And some of these conditions are more prevalent in uh, younger people and some are more prevalent in older adults. So for example, the more classic perineoplastic encephalitides, which tend to be, but not exclusively associated with uh, intracellular antigens or intracellular targets for the antibody. Uh, those tend to be more in older adults, I think as Dr. Cho mentioned uh, earlier. Great, thank you. Um, so uh, when thinking about treating um, autoimmune encephalitis, Dr. Cho, are there any acute treatments Yes, there are some standard treatment approaches for either suspected or proven autoimmune encephalitis. And a lot of this depends on how sick the patient is and whether you have excluded other possibilities such as an infection. But generally, once you 
have narrowed down the the probability of the, the patient's condition being autoimmune encephalitis because the the process is driven by the immune system's uh, attack on the brain cells, the initial treatments are all targeting turning the immune system down and reducing that inflammation. So the standard treatments all for any of these conditions typically begins with intravenous corticosteroids, um, such as methylprednisolone or dexamethasone, and those are sort of broad immunosuppressive medicines that are used in a lot of different conditions, but they work very quickly and help to control the inflammation. They're not very good uh, long-term medicines because they have a lot of side effects if you stay on them for a long time. Other possible acute treatments after the intravenous corticosteroids include something called plasma exchange, where the, the patient's blood is taken out through a catheter, put through a machine that filters the blood and removes uh, the antibodies and other factors that could be involved in the disease. And then the sort of filtered blood or plasma is given back into the patient so that they have the same volume in their blood. But it's a sort of fast way of basically filtering out the antibodies and other factors that might be contributing. And then another acute treatment is something called intravenous immune globulin. And that is basically a pooled uh, supply of antibodies that are taken from thousands of different donors. So when, when, when you go to donate blood, some, some of that blood is given back uh, directly as blood, but sometimes the uh, for specific donations, the blood is actually filtered out and all the antibodies are taken out. And when you do that with thousands of people, it has a big mix of antibodies and that can be helpful to um, basically suppress the immune system's production of new antibodies and can also be effective in the acute setting as you're trying to get the encephalitis under control. So there, there aren't any randomized clinical trials that have shown these to be the most uh, appropriate medicines, but it is definitely the standard of care, and a lot of it is based on um, just experience among uh, experts and also, you know, basically using the kind of treatments we use in other similar diseases where there's inflammation of the nervous system, such as multiple sclerosis or optic neuritis or transverse myelitis. Um, and so a lot of it is the similar medicines that you would see if you presented with transverse myelitis, whether it's due to NMO or other diseases. There are some other medicines for very severe cases that can be used, um, but those are the, the first-line treatments. For those cases that are associated with a tumor, and as Dr. Bradshaw mentioned, there are some patient based on age and the way they present that where we're more suspicious for a tumor, then treating the tumor is also done at the same time as these acute immune treatments. And the, I guess the classic example of that would be the tumor that's most commonly associated with NNDA receptor encephalitis, the, the teratoma, which is typically seen on the ovary. Um, that 
is uh, the source of the the stimulus for the immune system. And so while you turn down the immune system with the medicines or treatments I just mentioned, removing the source of the trigger is also key in many cases. We, the, the treatment approach in that regard is evolving as we get newer and better uh, medicines to target the immune system, um, particularly if there's any issues around uh, fertility for women with the uh, ovarian teratoma, there may be times in which we avoid the surgery, which requires you to remove the whole ovary, and instead we use other medicines to try to avoid that. So generally speaking, the acute treatments are to suppress the immune system and to try to remove the source of the, the proteins that's triggering the response. Great, thank you. Um, and we did get a question about um, third line treatments with refra refractory cases. So um, are there any possibilities or medications that are you are using uh, for third line treatments, uh, Dr. Bradshaw? I think, um, so as Dr. Cho discussed, the, um, the usual first line sort of options, and some people will argue that um, some of what we consider second or third line treatments should be considered um, early on as well. So things, uh, treatments like rituximab, which is a, in, a manufactured antibody that targets uh, a, a protein on certain kinds of blood cells called B cells. Uh, those B cells uh, go on to become plasma cells, which produce antibodies. And so uh, rituximab is often used in, in these patients to try to stop the production of the abnormal antibody. Um, other aggressive treatments like cyclophosphamide uh, carry uh, implications for, as Dr. Tracy, uh, as Dr. Cho alluded to, for pregnancy, uh, in the future fertility for women. Uh, and, but that's essentially a chemotherapy medication that uh, is sometimes used. I would say that one of the really important things when, uh, when someone is not appearing to respond to the usual immunotherapy and the initial uh, investigation for an underlying cancer is, is unremarkable, is to make sure that we are really doing the best uh, testing for an underlying tumor that we can, because oftentimes uh, if you don't find the underlying cancer and treat it, um, you can treat someone with as much immunotherapy as you like and you may not get their disease under control because the underlying antigenic trigger is still there being the tumor. And so if the initial screening test, so for example, with NMDA receptor encephalitis, we often will do an initial screen for an ovarian teratoma with, a, with an ultrasound. And if that's unremarkable or has some questionable finding on it, uh, those usually need to be followed up very carefully with uh, additional imaging such as, you know, MRI of the ovaries or even a PET scan looking for any other um, occult uh, cancer inside the patient's body. Uh, and if there's anything that looks suspicious, then oftentimes that requires biopsy or, or um, surgical removal. So I would say that a lot of times, or, or at least some of the time when you have a, a patient who does not appear to be responding or seems to be getting worse despite immunotherapy, we need to make sure that we've optimized our diagnostic investigations uh, first and foremost. And then when we think about the clinical course that we see with these patients, uh, even with NMDA receptor encephalitis, the average hospitalization is something like three months. And so a patient may uh, 
appear to be stable or not appear to be changing much to their loved ones, uh, but the neurologic um, evaluation remains critical and even a subtle improvement may signal that they're actually on their way to recovery. Recovery can take quite a long time for these conditions. Even the, the conditions that are readily reversible uh, uh, in the long run uh, will take a long time to recover in the short term. Finally, in for patients with an intracellular antigen, uh, we think the underlying mechanisms of disease between these extracellular antigens and the intracellular antigens are different. The extracellular antibody syndromes like NMDA receptor encephalitis and LGI-1 encephalitis, uh, the antibody itself appears to be or is directly pathogenic and contributes to the disease process. Whereas, um, and there are probably other factors as well there, but in the uh, intracellular uh, syndromes, we think that the more predominant feature is a, a immune response that's mediated by T cells, which can be uh, cytotoxic, meaning they, they actually kill the neurons as the, uh, as the encephalitis is ongoing. And so when we find a patient with an intracellular antigen, and those usually correlate more likely with uh, underlying malignancy, oftentimes uh, our, our goal is to stop the progression of the disease. Uh, we'd like to see them improve, but if there has already been um, sufficient structural damage to the brain, that damage may not uh, ever heal. Uh, and so, unfortunately, sometimes our, our hope is to halt the progression rather than to attain complete recovery. We always hope for that recovery, but often what in those intracellular syndromes, often what we see is just uh, halting progression. Hey, thank you. Um, so uh, moving on to the long-term um, kind of effects, uh, Dr. Cho, can you tell us what, what those might be and what the prognosis for someone with autoimmune encephalitis is? So as Dr. Bradshaw mentioned, it really depends on the nature of the encephalitis. In general terms, those autoimmune encephalitis that targets the outside of the brain cells, like an MDA, is generally has a good prognosis if it is diagnosed and treated relatively soon after the symptoms develop. The reason is that, as Dr. Bradshaw mentioned, those antibodies tend to alter the the cell function without killing the cell. And then if you remove the antibodies, the cell that's still there now can do its normal function and, and the patient's symptoms will often improve. Whereas generally speaking, those antibodies that are targeting a protein inside the cell are usually associated with those cytotoxic cells that uh, lead to the, the nerve cell actually being destroyed, not just altered temporarily. And therefore, those uh, typically perineoplastic uh, encephalitis syndromes often do not recover, and a lot of their outcome depends on the ability to treat the underlying cancer. Within each of those two main categories, there's a wide variation in both how severe the original illness is and how well it responds to treatment and how well the patients recover. So 
in NMDA receptor encephalitis specifically, I have been amazed at the ability for patients with very severe disease to recover completely. The most extreme example of that is a patient that I had who, despite aggressive treatment early on, including removal of the teratoma and rituximab, had a hospital course that lasted three months in the intensive care unit, basically in a coma, then six more months in a rehabilitation center, and she basically had to learn to eat and walk and talk. And uh, But one year later, she was completely normal back to her high-level uh, job that she had been doing previously. So that's one example of um, an extreme severity of illness with a full recovery. There are other forms like the limbic encephalitis that's often associated with LGI-1 that Dr. Bradshaw mentioned earlier, which is frequently a disease that happens once and then gets better and doesn't happen again. However, if, if the patient in that illness, the typical presentation is with seizures, if the seizures go on a long time without being controlled, they can cause secondary damage to the brain and the, even after the encephalitis is treated and, and gone, the patient might still have a tendency to have seizures and might require to be on medicines for the seizures. They might also have trouble with their memory because that same part of the brain is involved in, in learning and memory. So the, the important points are that early recognition and treatment are very important and each individual patient has to be taken in context uh, to determine their prognosis and their long-term outcome. And as Dr. Bradshaw mentioned, our goal is to keep finding earlier ways to diagnose these patients and better treatments. So even those that tend not to recover with the perineoplastic syndromes, our goal is hopefully to have ways to, to stop the progression early on and preserve the, the brain tissue so that there aren't any permanent uh, impairments. But we're a long ways off from that at the moment. And, and how a patient does really is dependent on the nature of their encephalitis. Hey, thank you, um, Dr. Cho. Uh, so I think you might have uh, mostly answered this, but um, if there's anything you want to add um, to how many patients need ongoing treatment for relapses or becoming chronically ill, and what are those treatments? So, uh, Dr. Bradshaw, do you want to take a turn here? I'm happy um, to sure. Uh, either way is fine. Um, uh, I, I guess I, I would just say that um, uh, I agree with what Dr. Cho was saying, and um, relapse rates for some, you know, vary from one encephalitis syndrome to another, and uh, we see those, for example, in NMDA, LGI-1, or a couple of others called CASPER-2 or AMPA encephalitis. We see a relapse rate in the range of maybe 12 to 35%, um, and that typically if someone's going to relapse, it typically happens when the uh, immunotherapy is being tapered or discontinued. And so I think ever, probably if you asked 10 different autoimmune neurologists, they would each give you a slightly different answer on, on what their typical practice is. Um, it's always tailored to an individual's course and the severity of their illness in the first place and response to treatment, et cetera. But I say that in general, um, I, I tend to 
favor immunotherapy maintenance for two years or so, particularly when there's no underlying malignancy. Uh, if there was a tumor such as the teratoma and that's been removed, uh, patients may not need more long-term uh, immunotherapy. And my, uh, you know, typically what we will use is is rituximab because uh, there is some decent evidence of that. But if there's some people will do um, pulse doses of IV steroids or IVIG, like Dr. Cho discussed before. Um, and I would just say that while tapering immunotherapy. Uh, we just need to monitor our patients closely in order to determine if they're having some uh, early relapse symptoms. But uh, each of these uh, autoimmune encephalitic syndromes are associated with different rates of relapse uh, in general. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so uh, there is sometimes a fear that people with autoimmune disease have about getting vaccinations and other kinds of injections. So, um, Dr. Cho, is it safe for people with autoimmune encephalitis to use an injectable medication after their inflammatory attack? And uh, what about vaccines? The short answer is yes. Vaccines uh, are different than injectable medications in that they're, they're designed to activate the immune system to generate a response to protect the, the patient from a future infection. So, the the, vac the way vaccines work is they are designed to generate the immune system to activate, recognize whatever the protein is that is uh, from, a, usually uh, either from or similar to an infection, such as the flu virus. And, and so it is a very common question for uh, autoimmune diseases, whether it's encephalitis or a peripheral uh, process like uh, the inflammation of the nerves that occurs in Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the bottom line is that a lot of these vaccines are given, particularly the flu vaccine, because we know the risks of getting the virus, the flu virus, is very high and people die from it every year. And that is a quantifiable risk that is lowered by being vaccinated. Because so many people get vaccinated, millions of people get vaccinated, inevitably some of those people are going to also have an autoimmune neurologic disease. And so it's very uh, tempting to look back and say, well, maybe the vaccine caused the autoimmune encephalitis. We don't have good evidence that that's the case. There are certain forms of autoimmune disease in the brain that are very clearly related to vaccination, and more commonly in children, in particular, something called acute demyelinating encephalomyelitis, or ADEM, which many of your listeners may be familiar with because it commonly causes transverse myelitis. And that has clearly been linked to vaccination, mainly in children. Even in that case, it's very rare and the risks of not getting vaccinated, for instance, for measles or mumps, still is more dangerous than getting the vaccine. Once you've had one of these diseases, um, I think it's really a gray zone as to whether uh, to get a vaccination afterwards, particularly in the short term. But in general, I recommend that my patients with autoimmune encephalitis definitely get vaccinations that are appropriate for their age and their risks. 
and many of these patients, as Dr. Bradshaw mentioned, end up on medicines like rituximab, which might lower your immune system's ability to fight off infections. And therefore, it's even more important to have protection if you can get the vaccination before you start your, your treatment. Um, one of the, the issues with medicines like rituximab is that it makes uh, vaccinations less effective because you need your immune system to respond after the vaccine in order to, to generate that protective effect. So that was a long-winded answer, but the, the short answer is that we don't have great evidence that vaccines trigger autoimmune encephalitis. It's theoretically possible, but because autoimmune encephalitis is so rare and the diseases that we're trying to prevent with vaccines are not rare and can be very dangerous, I still recommend uh, vaccination and I, I wouldn't avoid a vaccine that is appropriate for a patient uh, out of fear of triggering the autoimmune encephalitis. In terms of other injectable uh, medications, I think it really depends on the nature of the medicine. Um, there's not a, a clear link between any particular in, infusion and the development of autoimmune encephalitis. And obviously, a lot of the treatments we use for autoimmune encephalitis involve infusions. So I, I don't think that is generally a, a concern, but there, you know, there may be some specific medicines uh, that might have more of a tendency to affect the immune system, particularly newer medicines that are used for certain cancers that are basically designed to rev up or activate your immune system. And some of those are certainly associated with autoimmune types of illnesses. The category of those medicines is called checkpoint inhibitors. So if someone has a history of autoimmune encephalitis, later develops an unrelated cancer for which one of the treatments is these newer medicines called checkpoint inhibitors, there's no current evidence that there's a, a, a strong risk for recurrence of autoimmune encephalitis, but it, that would be something, uh, a patient that I would want to monitor more carefully and have a low uh, threshold for testing for recurrence. Okay, thank you. Um, so we're getting near the end of our hour here, but I did wanna ask one last question if we could uh, get to it. Um, so Dr. Bradshaw, we often get questions of patients who want to participate in clinical trials. Are there any um, expected developments? Um, to my knowledge right now, there are there are no actively enrolling clinical trials in the in the United States. Uh, Dr. Cho may know otherwise, um, but that that's my understanding at this point. It's very difficult to study this because um, because it is a rare condition, and so um, what we as a scientific and medical community really need to do an important next step uh, going forward is is interinstitutional collaboration in order to. Uh, try to generate the numbers necessary to really um, organize and perform an adequate clinical trial if, if we can. We may never really be able to do that, uh, um, so we'll see. But uh, I think there was, there may be a clinical trial in Europe and maybe one in Korea about the acute treatments, but uh, to my knowledge, nothing in the United States at this point. I don't know, Dr. Cho, do you know of anything in the U.S. right now? I 
No, that, I agree completely. There, there's a, a group out of Oxford that has done a lot of research on autoimmune and perineoplastic uh, encephalitis that is doing a trial in the United Kingdom on NMDA receptor encephalitis using IVIG and rituximab. There was a prior proposal for a very similar trial in the United States, and it was just very difficult to get enough patients. And so uh, Dr. Bradshaw and I are both uh, part of a group of folks focused on rare encephalitis and other autoimmune neurologic diseases, and we are hoping to continue building a network so that we can enroll at 20 different hospitals to get the enough numbers. And I think groups like the Transverse Myelitis Association and the Autoimmune uh, Encephalitis Alliance are very helpful for raising awareness about these rare diseases and giving a voice for the patients to advocate for better funding for research and just making other physicians aware so that they know to seek out the right testing or to, to seek out an expert to help make these diagnoses and get patients involved. You definitely can ask uh, with your local physicians. There are some hospitals that do uh, research on these diseases just to better understand them without doing a trial of a, of a different treatment. So. Um, there is some research going on, uh, but just as Dr. Bradshaw mentioned, we don't currently have treatment trials available, but our hope is to be able to, to get together as a community across the country and uh, develop you know, a, a network where we could uh, enroll a large total number of patients from multiple different sites. And that's the, the goal in terms of uh, treatment studies for the future. I would just add to that that the um, oh I'm sorry just that the uh, the American Academy of Neurology has uh, a online community called Synapse and there's an autoimmune neurology section there that um, basically anyone can go and post a question uh, that basically anyone in that group can go and respond so if clinicians are out there and have a an unusual case that they're not sure what they should do and they they want to get some input from uh, colleagues at multiple different institutions. Uh, that's a nice place where uh, one could go and, and pose questions. And I think that's been very helpful for a number of people uh, in getting those questions answered and, and facilitates this interinstitutional collaboration that I think is so important. Okay, great. Thank you both so much. That was that was very informative. Um, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. Um, but we hope to continue this conversation both with um, the medical experts and the Autoimmune Encephalitis Alliance in the future. So um, thank you both, and I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you much for, thank you for having us.